Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we have a QA. All right, man. We are a couple weeks out. Have you ever figured out why new- Wiz's alcohol is called McQueen? Because he knows the best last name I mean, of really, all time. Really? I don't know. There's a designer called McQueen too. Clothes. Yeah. You know that? Yeah. I like stumbled upon a six hundred dollar dad hat on Nordstrom. Jeez. And I was like, why what the fuck? And it said McQueen on it. And I was like, what is this? And it's so that's the brand. I was like My ancestors. They gave, they gave me nothing. Your ancestors, they're still alive <laughs> making these hats. Not necessarily. I mean, true. Just because yeah. they're dead doesn't I mean you can't. The Wiz like, thing I don't get. Like, the designer's name is probably McQueen. But Wiz the Khalifa's, designer of gin? No, the designer of that oh, clothing oh, brand is yeah, probably yeah, last name McQueen. Yeah. But the, like, Wiz, his name is, his last name is not McQueen. No. What, what did that come all. from? I don't know, man. I like it, It's though. like an Irish name, isn't it? What, what are you guys? Yeah. Scottish and Irish. All the above, yeah, something over there. Yeah, um, uh, shit, lost. Oh, there it goes. I was gonna talk about the. You were just talking about designers. The guy that just passed away, Virgil Louis V. Yeah, Louis, Louis Vuitton designer. Yeah, that's wild. Is he the designer, or is he one of? Or I mean, I I'm really sure know. at this point they have a bunch of designers. Yeah, but I think he might have. Is been. he the V in Louis V? I don't know. Yeah, that's I what know. I was looking into it. I'm a, I think he was older, so I think he's probably one of the original yeah. designers, but... I mean, he's not not that old. It was 40s, right? Actually, yeah. Um, I think he was in his 40s. He's not okay. old at all. I thought he was... So he couldn't be, because Louis V's been around for I thought he was in that. his 30s, but yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah, so I don't know. He's probably just one of their main designers, because they've probably got a bunch. Yeah. Um, that's like, have you ever heard the story about... Uh, I don't remember their first names, but Lamborghini and Ferrari? Uh, no. It's actually a really, really cool story. Yeah, like, it was. Of 40 years old how they became famous and like, I mean, I I don't know if it's, I think it's Lamborghini. The guy who made Lamborghini actually was building lawnmowers and shit. Like that's what he was into. And he got a Ferrari and, and was like kind of picking it apart with the mechanics of Ferrari, like way back in Italy Mm. and back in the day or something like that. And they wouldn't let him like, they were just basically assholes about him, like correcting some of the like technical issues with the vehicle and so he ended up, out of spite, like making his own sports car, which was little Lamborghini. And then they both just blew up in competition. Wow, it's pretty crazy. Like that it's a cool, cool some some kind of. I was listening to something. It was like a business. Where you heard that from? Yeah, and they were telling the story about it to apply it as an analogy for success. And but it was it was dope. Like basically, I wonder if he was a monk. The monk who sold his Ferrari. <laughs> he might have been. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's basically just saying, uh, like, for people who do really well with business, they typically find a problem that needs to be fixed and they become the best at fixing Absolutely. or providing that solution. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know what? I heard Andy Frisella say it because he used to be in a Ferrari club and now he's in a Lamborghini club. And I think it's because something, I, I don't know. He had some issue with, I don't know, Ferrari shit, but um, nice problem to have. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he for, for whatever reason, he went over and he said he fell in love with Lamborghinis way, but like they're just way better. He's into cars, so it's actually kind of cool hearing him talk about the stats of the two. Yeah, and I was like, oh, that's interesting because I, I never looked at them and was like, that one's definitely nicer. I just always see them as the shit. They're uh-huh. just super nice. Not a fan of Lamborghini. Really? No. Nope. Just because Andy. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, probably not. No, I like Ferrari a lot more. I mean, obviously they're all both. Yeah. But if 
I like the looks of a Ferrari more than I like Lambo. Yeah, I kind of I kind of lean that way too, just because the the Lambos are pretty fucking big. Yeah. You know, they're, like, very wide and very boxy wide, and yeah. low, which in some ways is kind of fucking cool. Yeah. But Ferrari's, Ferrari's stylish. Yeah, they have many different... Well, I guess Lamborghini does, nope. too, but I feel like Lamborghinis look more similar when they have all of them, you know? Yeah. But apparently Lamborghinis are nicer from, a like, a motor and a race and Damn. a handling, and yeah. so, which makes sense. I mean, I, I look at Ferrari more as, like, you could, you could buy a Ferrari as a luxury cruise car like you would cruise around a a Ferrari but Lamborghini's like you want to fucking hit the throttle race you know what I mean but I probably won't get either yeah I don't think if I if if I had enough money to buy either one of those I probably wouldn't damn really yeah I don't think I'd buy a Ferrari I'd get a Bentley way before I got one of those I'd get a Bentley SUV I'd get I would stop myself from doing that and get a Rolls Royce like I like all those kind of cars because I don't myself. I don't like driving fast. I'm like no. I want to slow down and just chill and cruise. Like I would rather have a car that is like, yeah. Except Rolls Royce, like you kind of have to have a chauffeur. Yeah. Like I feel like if you're driving your own Rolls Royce, it kind of de- like kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I probably wouldn't like, do that. Like uh, what's his name? DJ Khaled. He has like the, the that uh, shit is crazy. The, the stars in the back yeah. and stuff, and it like lights up. That is crazy. Oh man. Yeah. I don't think so. I think I, I'm the type that uh, I'd probably spend that money on other shit. To be honest with you. Like property and have like fucking I know, that, but the thing is, when you're buying that, you have money for property and you're, and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have an. You're like shit, man. I'm going down to the last penny. I think I'm getting a Ferrari. Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably not the best decision. Yeah, but all right. Yeah. So let's uh, get on to the Q and A. We got a lot of good questions here. Um, some from Instagram and some from Facebook today. So we will start with one that. I, oh my God, we're just gonna say it's from Karina. Uh, no, no, go ahead. What's <laughs> I wrote that and I was like, there's no way. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah. Karina okay. says, can I combine strength training and running if I want to build muscle? How many days should strength training be versus running? You can, but you always have to remember that I would say for like a very general ratio, two thirds to three fourths of your training should be proportion to the main thing that you're after. So if your main goal is building muscle, then I think your main thing should literally be strength training. And your your one-third or one-fourth of your training should be running. Like, you can definitely do both. There's plenty of concurrent athletes. There's plenty of people who do both. You have to be really smart with how you program and position them, and you have to make sure that you're not doing more volume of one than the other. Um, unless, I, I should take that back. You want to make sure you're doing more of one volume-wise than the other, as long as that one thing is your main goal. So in this case, your strength training volume should trump. Like how many hours you spend strength training should be more than how many hours you spend running or doing cardio. That's like the the easiest way to answer it. And you definitely can. Now, when we look at the research behind concurrent training, which for those listening who don't know what concurrent is, concurrent training is doing – it's training in multiple modalities with multiple focuses. So it is this. It's strength training, but also doing running. It's endurance and hypertrophy, endurance and powerlifting, stuff like that. Um, if that's you and this is in, in your situation, most research suggests that you should split it up four to six hours and do it on the same day. Like so most people would think, and there's different ways to split this, but if somebody's doing three days of strength training, two days of running, that's only five days a week. You have seven days in a calendar week. You can definitely do like Train, run, train, rest, train, run, rest, right? You have two full rest days. But if somebody's really trying to like push muscle growth and they just want to add running or cardio because they like it or they want to have a a healthy aerobic system, you're probably going to want to strength train four or five days a week, which means that you're going to have to do two days. 
or you can add it at the end of your strength training, which I think you'd be fine doing, but you wouldn't get the most out of either one. You'd end up fatiguing yourself sooner and potentially injuring yourself. So the best way to do it is to separate four to six hours and do it on the same day. So if you're lifting five days a week, I would actually suggest doing a run in the morning and then lifting in the evening, right? Four to six hours apart and then making sure that... Um, you, you have that four to six hour period so that you are separating it and you can optimize recovery. Um, and then you still have two rest days, one rest day, right? You can put on the other one. So if you want to do four days of lifting, two days of running on your off days, that's fine too. But for the most part, the answer is yes. And, and um, you can refer back. We did a research review on concurrent training. We talked about this, but the main thing is you got to separate it. Um, if you do them back to back or together, it just shitty performance in both. Totally. All right. Next question is going to be from... I lost it. Uh, it's going to be Ispy Sam says, why does my hunger feel suppressed when I work out and heightened on the days I rest? Interesting. I, you know, there's a little bit of research to back this up that I'm familiar with. Um, there's probably more than what, than what I'm just familiar with, obviously. Um, and then there is, you know, a little bit of theory just based on my experience working with people and training myself because uh, I get the same exact thing. Like it, I'll even be like really hungry pre-workout. Then I'll lift and just have a lot of fluid during my workout. And then I'm not even that hungry when I get done. So a part of this, I think is when we have a increase of adrenaline, uh, cortisol, really all these things that heighten our nervous system, right? Our central nervous system. We're in fight or flight mode. Hunger is the last thing on our mind. Right. And, and a lot of this, too, is because when we look at digestion, digestion is going to improve when you're in a parasympathetic state, which is a low stress, rest and recover, rest and digest, nervous system dominant. Right. Sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight, stress, high demand. Parasympathetic is low stress, rest and recovery, not demanding. You're able to digest better, um, partially because of the nervous system state you're in, but partially, too, because when you're in a sympathetic state, the brain, the body, the nervous system, whatever it is, sends blood to the limbs, right? Because if you're in a sympathetic state, you need blood up here so you can be cognitively there and you need blood in your limbs so you can run, punch, fight, whatever it may be because you're in fight or flight, um, scarcity mode. Um, if you are in a parasympathetic state, you're more likely to be able to send blood to the gut, right? Which is going to allow attention in the gut to digest, you know what I mean? Um, so... Part of it could be that. Uh, part of it could also be there is a, a link with, so like when they remove physical activity, they don't see a decrease in hunger necessarily. And I think that's offset because when we exercise, it actually can be an appetite suppressant temporarily, um, which is also why exercise is one of the number one habits that you need to sustain when trying to lose weight consistently. And um, I'm going to record a podcast on this. So whether you're listening to this after or before I record it, I don't know. Uh, but it's on basically how people sustain weight loss. And one of the things was training is like one of the most documented things in research showing how people sustain fat loss from a dietary perspective is why is by having the habit of consistent exercise. Um, and there's an appetite regulation effect from this. So part of it is that I think, cause you, you obviously have a, a stimulation of hunger hormones up and down from training. Uh, and then the other part is I think when you're training, like you're just not hungry. I mean, like I don't know about you, but I'd throw up if I ate something in the middle of a training session Yeah, um, because that's not where my mind, my blood flow, anything is focused on digestion right now. It's or focused stomach, on yeah. training, you know? Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. I think mainly it's that. And then we got to remember too, like I always tell people, this is the problem with carb cycling. <laughs> like there is some 
like realistically for fat loss, there's not much value in carb cycling because, um, and I did a whole video and a blog and a podcast on this. So we have tons of content on it. Um, we'll link the blog in this episode and in the blog, I have everything linked in there. And, uh, I talk about, you know, carb cycling can be a good way to adhere to a deficit for some people because for some people it helps having really high days and then really low days. It's easier for me to grind it out and have a really low carb day and have a really high carb day because it's a sense of reward versus for some people it might be, and I'm not saying me as in it's easier for me literally, but for some people that's easier versus moderate carb intake throughout the week, right? But if we go to the end of the week, the caloric difference is, it it doesn't change. If calories are equated, there's no difference between carb cycling and non-carb cycling for fat loss. Now, if we look at performance, there may be some advantage of shuttling more carbohydrates around the training session, making it more advantageous to have higher carbs around those. But at the same time, when I work with people who were focused on performance and recovery from a stress perspective, because they still have aesthetic or health goals, I don't like that because, you know, when I train really hard today, I'm recovering tomorrow. So if I'm recovering tomorrow, I need nutrients tomorrow. If I'm putting all my nutrients in my higher calorie days on the days that I'm actually training, then, I, then I'm having less calories on the days I'm not training, which are the days that I'm recovering between the days I'm, reco- mm. I'm training, right? So those are the days I actually need more nutrients to make sure that by the time I get back in the gym to train, I'm good and I can perform because I recovered. So if we look at glycogen depletion and replenishment, it's not a quick process. It's, it's 24, 36, 48 hours. So realistically, tomorrow, after a heavy leg day today, I would actually be more depleted tomorrow and more ready to replenish versus, you know, I mean, really the window after you're training all the way up to tomorrow. But it's not this like finite window that you're like in a box, right? This anabolic window. So um, I don't even remember the original question, but I think that... Uh, Hungry... Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. So I don't think there's any value in carb cycling for that reason. Yeah. Like I think it's, it's fine to have most of my clients get the best results when we have calories on the same every day. And I have a lot of people who ask me like after I give them their initial nutrition prescription, should I have those calories every day? Like even on my rest days? And I'm always like, yep, same every day, like consistent building that consistency is, is the best route. Totally. So. All right, cool. The next one's going to come from hi, Kristen. It says how to approach clients that simply aren't putting in enough effort. No, no tracking, not training, but they feel frustrated by not losing weight. Be blunt. Education builds compliance. So if people get educated, they will comply better. So usually there is a gap. Even if you feel like you're trying to educate the person, there is a gap there. They don't understand what you are telling them. And you have to remember that if you're working with somebody who has very low nutritional competence, which is something I've been talking about a lot lately, um, they don't comprehend things as well as you do, which makes sense. I have a very, very high nutritional competence because I've been tracking macros for a fucking decade and I've been coaching people for over that. It's really easy for me to understand this shit. If you tell me something about nutrition, it's going to click. I'm going to be like, that makes total sense. You know what I mean? It'd be like me telling you, hey, you mix green and yellow, it makes blue, right? That makes sense. You learned that in preschool. You've learned it every year since. It makes sense. Two colors come together, right? That's how macros, that kind of shit works with me. But if you put me in a different realm, sports, mm-hmm. no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Most of the time. You know, I know who the Seahawks are and I know that there's a quarterback and a wide receiver and stuff like that. I don't know how many players on the field. I don't know how, like, how the, the game. I almost said innings. It's not innings. <laughs> Is it innings? Quarters. 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 Yeah. Innings are baseball. Yeah. Like there's, there's semantics that like, it just goes over my head because when I was taught it, I didn't give a shit. So I didn't like absorb it. And the yeah. person t- 
teaching me it didn't give a shit enough to really like make sure my sport competence was high. So you have to look at it from the same lens. When you're talking to somebody who has a low nutritional competence and you should be assessing this with people, you have to adjust your education strategy to the client's competence level so that you can build their competence. And their competence is, is going to be directly correlated with their knowledge, right? That's what you're trying to build so that they equal a greater competence, which is just another way of saying their ability to consistently ex- execute what they need to do. And the best way to create competence, which is an ability to execute consistently, is to teach them what, why, how, when, where, everything, right? Give them the blueprint. Don't try to hide anything. Tell them exactly what the fuck's going to happen, how it's going to go, how they're going to get results, how you're going to adjust. The more you lay out for somebody, the more it's going to make sense or the more they're going to trust you. So even if some of it doesn't completely make sense, you've gone enough in depth on the topic of teaching them and showing them the passion you have about teaching them that they trust you. Because they might say, and this happens with uh, you hire somebody to do something, um, a contractor, a plumber, a mechanic or anything, and they talk to you. Sometimes you look at them and you're like, all right, I get exactly what you're saying. And other times you go, I don't really understand everything you're saying, but I trust you because you sound like you understand what the fuck you're doing and you sound like you actually care about my situation. You know what I mean? So that's a level of, of, of creating trust that overrides competence because sometimes you don't need it completely. But the truth is, is like the first statement I said, education builds compliance. So one thing I've learned as I've, I've done this longer and longer is the more I try to educate my clients and the more I try to create autonomy in my clients and empower them to understand what's going on, the better the results they are and the better their adherence is because they trust me more, their buy-in is higher, and eventually it leads to a greater nutritional competence, which is just an ability to consistently execute, period. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's what it boils down to. So if somebody's uh, lacking all those things, you need, to, uh, you need to educate them better. But then you also need to have a, a conversation with them of like, how bad do you want this? And don't feel judged if you don't want it that bad. Because the truth is, is there's, there's a point where everybody has to assess the work that's required versus the outcome they're, they're striving for. So if this person wants to lose weight super fucking bad, but they're unwilling to track macros, they're unwilling to fill out the, the update form for you, they're unwilling to train, they don't really want to lose that weight. Because if they did, it'd be a no-brainer. They would remove those things. Anything in life that we really want, we make sacrifice to get it. Absolutely. Period. So if you really wanted it, it wouldn't be a, a matter of if or ha- a when. It, it's a matter of how, right? It's a matter of how do I do it? How do I create this competence so that I can do it? So sometimes you have to have that conversation. I've had this conversation with clients, and it's not an easy one, especially when you first start having these. The more confident you get as a coach, the better it is and the easier it is. But, and the more breakthroughs you have with people. But talking to people, I had a conversation with somebody about this very recently, and we actually kind of switched his plan and this is the level of seriousness and all that kind of stuff. Cause I straight up asked him, I was like, man, why do you, why are you doing this? Like, why do you really want this school? Like, do you really want the school? Is this really what you're after? Because your consistency doesn't line up with what it, what's required to get you where you want to be. And if you don't where really you say you want to be where you say you want to be exactly. And if you, if you really don't want to be there that bad, you just like the idea of it, or somebody said something, or you said something to somebody, or you told me that originally, and you don't have the heart to tell me that you're really not into it anymore. That goal is, is not that important to you. Cause you think you're gonna let me down as your coach. You need to like backtrack and just open up and be like, I don't think my life supports that. And that's not what I want. Right. And that's actually what this person did. And we just backtracked. I was like, bro, I don't care what you want. I just want to help you get there. It doesn't matter to me if you want to get shredded or you want to get jacked or you want to change it all. You just want to be healthy yeah. and it doesn't matter. So for him, it came down to balancing stress from work and, and having more time with his family, which means less time in the gym, less time dieting, more flexibility and slower progress. If any, sometimes just maintenance. 
I'm like, dude, that's fine. If that gives you what you actually want in life, then that's perfect. But you, as a coach, you have to be willing to have those conversations with clients and be like, hey, look, this goal you say you want, this is, this is all the shit it requires, right? This is the reward you'll get at the end of it if you make these sacrifices, and it will feel amazing when you get there, just like you imagined. But you have to accept the work, the sacrifice, the time, the effort, all these things in the middle that are between you right now and the you you want to get to. And if you can accept those things, then we can move forward. If you can't, then we need to figure out a different goal, and that's fine. It's your goal, not mine. But I think that ultimately that's like, that's the conversation a lot of people are afraid to have with clients because their worst fear as a coach is them going, you know what? You're right. I don't want that. I don't need to hire you. And they're like, fuck, I just worked myself out of a job. But nine times out of 10, that's not what happens. I would say 75% of the time, the person goes, fuck, you're right. And I am willing to do all those things, right? Maybe they don't say fuck. Some of them do, but they'll, they'll go, you know what? You're right. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to make the time I'm going to, I'm willing to learn. I'm going to track, I'm going to do that. And they actually get on board because they realize like, this is just the price you pay to get where you want to be. And then 25% of the time they don't fire you. They just go, you know what? You're right. Can you steer me in a different direction? And that's happened to me tons of times. Even so I I filmed a video for a guy where I straight up said, I might be talking myself out of a job right now, but like, man, this is my honest advice from man to man to you. Like what I think you should do. And like, when we look at what's really important of your life, your marriage, your, your family, like those kind of things. And this is a different person than the one I was just talking about. Like, dude, that overrides getting super lean or like he's really in fitness. So he wants to get shredded that overrides macros and tracking all this stuff. So like you do, we got to like find the balance here. And even if this works me out of a job, but you're happier and better off with family because of it, then I win, man. Yeah. That's all I want. Yeah. Um, and what really needed to happen is they need to have a conversation with, with him and his wife, figure out how to balance it, so on and so forth. And that's what they did. And now he's cruising. I thought he was gonna be like, you're right, man, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> but that was like my honest coaching feedback. You know what I mean? So um, you just can't be afraid to have that conversation yeah. as a coach. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast and shout out our sponsor, Legion Athletics, the world's number one best-selling brand of all natural sports supplements. Guys, if you're listening to this, you probably take supplements. I'm assuming you take away protein. You probably have some pre-workout. If you're really focused on health, you might take a, a multivitamin, a green drink, a fish oil, whatever it is. Legion probably has it, and they are going to be using science-backed ingredients. Everything is actually dosed effectively and clinically proven. Everything is naturally sweetened and flavored. Everything is lab-tested, made in the U.S., and you're going to get a money-back guarantee. So the reason I'm bringing this up is not only because they're a podcast sponsor, but I truly value the team at Legion, and I truly value what they are doing in the supplement space. And one of the things that is really frustrating for a lot of people that come to us is trying to find a brand where they can actually get quality supplements and they can trust the result that's going to come from them. Most people just search Amazon for the best result they can find, and they trust Amazon reviewers. And don't get me wrong. If something has a lot of stars and good reviews, that's awesome. But you can also pay people to leave reviews. So go with a company that you can trust that is backed up not only by science and actual researchers in the lab doing things, but coaches like myself who have tons of experience and use this stuff on a regular basis. So guys, stop wasting money. Stop searching and searching and searching for the best product out there and just jump on Legion Athletics. They are the best and I promise you that. You can head over to buylegion.com slash boom boom and save 20% on your first order and start earning points so you can get kickbacks on future orders and eventually free products. So one more time, that's buylegion.com slash boom boom. Without any further ado, let's get back into the podcast. Okay, so we'll go to the next question from uh, Paige Bab. It says, hey, Cody, I just got some blood work done, and my BUN 
creatine, and liver enzymes were elevated. Do you have any advice on how to lower my levels? I'm a college athlete and eat mostly whole foods. If this is not up your alley, do you recommend seeing an, a naturopathic yeah. doctor or an internist? Um, internist. Internist? Internist. Oh, that is. Um, so she said cre- the create, creatinine and BUN. Yep. Few things here. Number one, I am not a doctor. I am not a physician, um, nor am I a naturopathic doctor. Um, also, I don't recommend naturopathic doctors. I think that most of them are not the best people to go to. And I'm sorry if anybody listening here is a naturopathic doctor and I'm not trying to talk shit or talk down. Um, I think there are good ones out there, just like there's bad everything and good everything. Everything in life, there's bad versions of blank person. There's good versions of blank person in every field. Um, naturopathic doctors, in my experience, tend to work off of pseudoscience and get you to buy supplements. Like that's typically what they do. They make you do like food sensitivity tests and stuff like that, which have been debunked and the enzymes that are spiking, the IgG enzyme test for sensitivities don't actually correlate with what you're actually allergic or sensitive to from nutrient perspective. So it's kind of a waste of money. They prick you. They tell you what you're sensitive to until you stop eating it. It does nothing for your health at all. And then they tell you, you got to buy these special enzymes and herbs and adaptogens that they sell only in their Clinic. Little location, right? Yeah. In their clinic. And this is also why you don't see naturopathic doctors in a hospital. Why is that? Because they have their own little specialty clinics where they try to talk to people into going to. So I'm not a fan of them. I don't think they're the best. Um, I think there's good ones out there who are smart that kind of kind of pave their own path because you have the freedom. Whereas if you're a doctor in a hospital, you can't really pave your own path. You got to go by the book. Um, but in this situation, I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend finding a great doctor or like an endocrinologist, like a hormonal doctor, um, somebody who you can trust, a nutritionist that you can hire, a dietitian, um, so, a, a team of coaches who have a PhD on staff that can review blood work, hint, hint, us, um, when you work with us and we can actually do this stuff. Um, I can't give you any specific advice, but what I would say is both of those levels are commonly high in a lot of athletes and it's not something you should freak out about or worry about, right? Like cre- creatine levels, creatinine levels, BUN levels. Um, a lot of times these are, these are somewhat normal and they fluctuate. And with athletes, we can see some of those. Um, but the truth is, is you can't, you can't really give great advice on blood work by isolating one single thing most of the time, right? You can obviously look at blood work and if your thyroid is just through the floor, then yeah, I can say, Hey, you have a thyroid dysfunction issue. But if we're just looking at that one nutrient, I'm going to want to know the whole picture. Like what's your weight? What's your BMI? What are your other metabolic panel levels showing? What are your hormone levels showing? What are your stress levels? When do you train? Were you fasted when you did this test? Did you train right before this test? Like, I mean, just that alone, if you train before blood work or you eat before blood work, it can completely change the the readings of what you see with hormone and, and any metabolic levels that you're testing for. So um, there's a lot of semantics that comes down to, and it's just, yeah, I can't really give you specific advice, but I would say find somebody that you can trust. Uh, and I don't think you have to like worry or freak out about it. I've oh, seen those levels high on my blood panels many times. Touche. All right. That's good. Um, we'll go to the next one here from Dallas Soto it says, how do you set up your lean bulking macros and what does your training look like? For example, your sets, reps, RIR, and RPE. Um, well, first and foremost, if you want to see what my training looks like, you can literally sign up for the Toyota Trainer app and do the Bulletproof Bodybuilding Program because that's what I'm doing. Five days a week, Bulletproof Bodybuilding. It's an upper, lower, upper, lower arms split. So there's a fifth day that's arm specialization. Um, after the first block, it turns into a back specialization day and then it alternates back and forth. That's, that's my current program right now. 
Um, and I'm going to run that until I start creating the next program. Part of, part of the, the problem with my training. So I'm going to give like some context here. So when I'm lean bulking, like I was doing in 2019, 2020, I was following a uh, five day or a six day split the whole time. So I would alternate between depending on my recovery, push pull legs or an upper lower push pull legs, um, which isn't the same as the five day split of bulletproof bodybuilding, but from a volume perspective, it is. And I like the split of bulletproof bodybuilding better. It's just more fun in my opinion. However, we do have a upper lower push pull legs and a, a push pull legs, push pull legs, six day split in the app as well both modeled off of what I did during that phase. So you can literally use exactly what I did for my bulking phase. And I gained 16 pounds. Mm. Some of that is, mu- is obviously fat, but a good amount of that was muscle in a year's time to put on 16 pounds is, is a fuck ton of muscle. Um, for just a natural person. That's probably, I would say I probably put on 10 pounds of muscle, six pounds of fat for sure, at least. Um, but nonetheless, I was doing a higher volume program. So always five or six days a week of lifting. I wasn't doing any cardio outside of the occasional day. I would do some assault bike or sled if I just wanted to do it or the rest of it was just neat. I was just walking enough to be healthy. Um, and then I was in a small surplus. So typically when I'm doing a lean bulking or I'm trying to gain uh, at a slow enough rate to where I don't just get super fat in the process, which is what my goal was, I go to maintenance and then I, and I had a coach at the time cause I think it's important to do so. But what we did is basically brought myself to maintenance, stayed there to make sure it was maintenance. And then we went into like a 5% surplus, maybe 10 at most, but a very small surplus because the truth is, is your training is going to create the stimulus for growth, your nutrition, your sleep and all that stuff, your lifestyle just supports the recovery for that training. So I think if I would have gone to a 500 calorie surplus instead of a 250 calorie surplus, let's say, or 20% versus a 10%. If I would have done that, then I would have gained the same amount of muscle, in my opinion, maybe a pound or two more, maybe over the year, but I would have put on probably another six to 10 pounds fat, like easily. Some people think it's advantageous to do that because when you put on more fat, you have better leverages. You can typically lift heavier. You might be able to squeeze out more volume. So maybe that's worth it. I don't think it's worth it because once you get to an advanced level, I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. I think your body has a physiological limit as to how much muscle it can actually put on per session, per week, per month, per year. And I don't think you're going to surpass that by eating more food because me eating more food doesn't equal more growth. It doesn't create tension in my muscles. My training does. And there's going to be a volume curve where if I have a 250 calorie surplus or 400 or 600, probably not much of a difference from a recovery perspective. As long as I'm getting enough sleep, I'm going to recover from that just as well. So I personally keep the surplus pretty small so I can go slow with gains. Um, I keep a low fat, high protein, very high carb diet. And I do a lot of volume five or six days a week, either a uh, push ball legs, push ball legs, or an upper lower push ball leg split. Um, which is the bulletproof bulletproof bodybuilding is upper, lower, upper, lower specialization day yeah. and the specialization day alternates. So I did it a little bit differently, but if I would have gone back, I would have done bulletproof bodybuilding because I would have, created it for that period you know I didn't create it then um but either one works the point is they're all in the app so go check that out you can uh taylortrainer.net does that still work that url so that should be in the description or you can just head over to taylortrainer.net the links are basically everywhere but check out the app you can 27 bucks a month you can get access to all of those programs um the surplus should be pretty small high carb is is ideal and um right now my training and nutrition is more around maintenance i'm basically like at maintenance and I'll dip into a, uh, so I'm on a diet break this week, but I, I dip into a deficit. I'm, I'm doing like two to three weeks of deficit and then like a full week of diet break. Very, very casual, just slowly trying to get leaner. Um, but I'm like 
same exact principles and philosophies of that very, very small surplus, but in a deficit. And my training has been bulletproof bodybuilding, but it's probably going to change soon because I'm going to start working on the next program, you know, and I worked on bulletproof bodybuilding for a while. Um, and I'm going to build out the next few phases of it soon, but that's the, like, for me, I'm not at a point where my goal is to build a lot of muscle or anything like that. Since I'm just trying to get leaner very slowly and just make sure I'm getting stronger, my training is far less structured than it has been. I mean, it's been pretty damn structured lately because I've been doing bulletproof bodybuilding, but I program hop every few months, every like, probably actually like one or two months because it's like more important for me to test programs and create things, you know, which it does make my results suffer. I would get better results if I did what I told people to do, which is do a program and stick with that program for six months, you know, months on end, that split, that volume, like just progress that you get better results from that. Um, however, it's fun for me and it's a creative process. I have to do the shit that I'm writing for people totally. in order for me to like really believe in it and know that it works. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the application. Yeah. So my results are gonna be subpar, but I also think that especially after the 2019 period where I really tried to put on a lot of muscle, I think I like squeezed out everything I could for the most part. I'm sure I could build more muscle if I got like just unbelievably dedicated to bodybuilding. That's just not in the cards for me and my lifestyle. I was going to say not without a wife, kids and dog. Yeah. And, and, and honestly in the business, I care too much about the business to spend that much time doing it. Like I get more, just as much joy, if not more out of the business that I do training, honestly. So, um, yeah, but because of that, I'm not like worried about getting huge or more big. So, Good, good, good. All right. Uh, we'll keep moving on here. We got one from Joey G555 says, my doctor prescribed me TRT. Would that help or guarantee me a more successful recomp? So for those listening, TRT is testosterone replacement therapy. Um, there's also HRT out there, hormone replacement therapy, because sometimes people have deficiencies in other hormones that they need to take hormone replacement therapy for. Um, and when it's doctor prescribed, it's it's... I think it's a positive thing most of the time. Obviously, it, it can be abused, but I think if somebody's in a position where their hormones are insufficient and supplementing those under a doctor's supervision can ha- allow them to have a better quality of life and probably more longevity because they're healthier, it's a win-win. Um, now, will it help your recomp? Indirectly, yes. Directly, I don't believe so. So there's a lot of research that shows testosterone doesn't literally cause muscle growth to happen. And I think this is a very misunderstood concept and it kind of goes both ways. Like there's a lot of people who don't understand hormones very well and they assume steroids, bodybuilders equals, they inject testosterone that makes them jacked. Really what's happening is they're injecting testosterone and IGF one and clenbuterol and trend and all these different things, Dianabol, those things cause muscle growth. They cause literal growth of tissue. That's what they are. They're growth hormones. So they cause growth of tissue, including heart, lungs, liver. Like that's why it's dangerous because yeah. if your heart starts growing it's the size of a horse, you're going to fucking die. Just like, uh, Rich Piana did. He just was like the fucking massive man. And that's what he was known for is pushing the boundaries with steroids. He passed away. Yeah, I think he had a stroke or heart attack, but his heart was probably the size of a fucking horse. Like, it's just massive. But testosterone doesn't cause growth of tissues. So there's like this miscommunication where that happens. And then all these uh, natural bodybuilding scientists and stuff publish this, the research and content around the research saying, see, TRT is stupid, steroids are stupid, testosterone doesn't equal growth. It's pointless. And then it's kind of this misconfusion. But if you really look into what testosterone does, it, it quite literally, and this is, you know, different hormones do different things that can indirectly lead to this. And this is why I say that. So for example, if you have to get on thyroid replacement therapy, 
we can't say that thyroid replacement therapy is directly going to burn fat or build muscle. However, if the thyroid replacement therapy helps you, like if you, if you uh, have any type of hormone replacement therapy and it puts you in a physiological state that's healthier than you were before and more able to manage stress, perform better, blah, 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 you're probably going to get better results because you're less stressed, you're sleeping better, you're recovering better, your metabolism better, everything's better. So guess what? Training's going to be better. And what testosterone does, the more... I've dug into hormones and, and listening in on all of them. What I've learned is testosterone is kind of like a, uh, from what I know, and again, I'm not a hormone specialist, but it's more of a, for men, it's what makes men men, obviously, right? That's the biggest physiological difference between men and women. I mean, obviously not. There's genitals and stuff yeah. like that, but our genitalia produces testosterone at a higher degree, and that actually allows us to have the attributes men have, even facial hair, stuff like that, but also that's where a lot of our motivation comes from. That's where a lot of our drive comes from. That's where a lot of our um, competitiveness comes from. That's where typically the, the reward sensation or the gratification of effort comes from. So people who have higher testosterone levels typically crave hard work. They, f- they get a, uh, like a, almost like a dopamine kick, but it's, that's a different realm, but, uh, they get, uh, fulfillment or satisfaction or that pleasure from yeah. work, hard yeah. work or effort. So the best way to look at, and this is, I, I'm seeing this from Andrew Huberman. It was a really good way of framing this. Uh, TRT or in general, testosterone increasing uh, in general, essentially just makes effort feel good is what he said. He was like, so if, if somebody is low in testosterone, they don't get off on effort as much. If they don't get off on effort as much, guess what? They're not going to get as great results in anything because they're not working as hard. So if we look at training in the gym, what is the literal thing that we are required to do in order to build muscle? It is train your muscles, your muscles with a hard effort, meaning as close as you can to failure. Getting really close to failure is hard because it takes a lot of effort. So if you do something that helps you get off on effort and be way more satisfied by effort, then guess what? You're going to train harder. You're going to put more attention on the muscle. You're going to do more volume. You're going to love the feeling of being in the gym more, which is going to bring you right back the next day. You're going to build more muscle. So in a way, testosterone definitely does build muscle. So the question of body recomp, can you guarantee it? No, because if you don't like if you bump up your testosterone a little bit or if you abuse it, you don't need to increase your testosterone. I mean, you already have high testosterone levels and you're taking testosterone as if that's going to change something. It won't unless you take super physiological levels on top of trend, steroids, those other things. It's not going to do anything. So I, I think the only time it's going to guarantee or, or really positively show a recomposition in any way is if somebody is low in testosterone clinically and the doctor prescribes TRT to bring them up to a normal high end range. And then that's going to allow them to perceive hard work as a good feeling. And they're going to work harder on fat loss, on their diet, on their training, on their muscles. And that's going to cause a recomp. So it doesn't directly cause recomposition, burning fat, build muscle. It just causes indirect things that force you or push you to do things that cause that more so. Um, and this is everything in life. They even said it was a really good way of looking at it too. They said, you know, it makes you more of who you are yeah. as a man. So as a man, like if that's the hormone that makes you more of who you are, if you're a happy, caring, giving person, you're very energetic, enthusiastic, when your testosterone is depleted or tanked, whether it's from dieting or bad lives or whatever, you're going to be way less of those things because those are traits that make you who you are and you're removing a hormone that allows you to be who you are. But if you increase those, you're going to be more of who you are. Yeah. So that's why like when people are driven individuals or motivated individuals and they deplete testosterone. If they replenish that, they're going to be back to their 
highly driven, motivated self, um, positive self. In the same token, there's stories of people who are angry individuals, who are not nice people. And when they use testosterone, guess what? They're more of who they are, which is an angry fucking asshole. So this is where like uh, roid rage comes from, the steroid idea of that steroids make you an angry, hurtful, crazy person. It's probably not steroids. It's probably these things that are making you more of who you are. And that person was already a raging, crazy kind of person in the first place, right? And that's why those situation stories are very few and far between in the first place. Um, And I also believe too, like obviously I don't have an experience with any of this, but when you start mixing a bunch of different chemicals, like all those different types of steroids, that's where like who fucking really knows, you know? And if you just have a little bit too much of this or not enough of this to balance this or whatever, it's like, I mean, that's 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 a world that I'm, too not, afraid to even not willing to no. dip your toes in the I don't even I wouldn't even want I don't like to even coach yeah. that. Like I've worked with people who have been on steroids, but I always make it very clear at the beginning. Do you have somebody who is watching over this with you? Like a doctor or somebody? Because there are doctors who help people monitor these things. And if the answer is yes, cool, let's do it. And I've helped people and I've worked with people that are on steroids and I've gotten great results through diet and training. But I'm like, I don't I'm never gonna give you advice on that shit because I don't understand it. Yeah. It is it's like breaking bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Fucking chemical math equations and shit like that. It's chemistry. Yeah, definitely. But yeah. Damn. All right. We got one more question today, guys. Um, it says it's from TJ Horn thirty two. Says how to be motivated to deload. What is your mindset on deloads and does it have to be an entire week? Um Deloads, I think, should be much more intuitive and uh, proactive if you can. Proactive being do it before you need it, right? If you're reactively deloading, it means that you're deloading when you're burnt the fuck out. So you get to a point where your joints hurt, your muscles are sore, you're tired, you're lethargic, you're unmotivated, and you're like, fuck, like I'm smoked. I trained too much, too hard. I'm overtrained. I need to deload. Versus doing it in a proactive manner is when you're like, man, I've been training pretty damn hard for six weeks, you know, in the past, every like seven or eighth week, I, I deload and I feel better when I do that. So I'm just going to like, I feel good right now, but I'm going to go ahead and just be sit, play it safe and deload this week so that I don't get burnt out. That's always the smartest bet. Um, and so that's my first piece of advice. The second one is if you want to be more intuitive with it, you can, you want to be more structured with it, you can, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, a deload intention and purpose is to drop intensity or volume, just give yourself a little bit of a break, not do as much so that you can come back to pushing really hard when you get back to training after the deload's done. Therefore, whether you are very structured and you go in and and this is a personality thing, so you just got to kind of monitor, like assess your own personality of what you want to do. But if you're a very structured person, you go in and you're like, all right, I'm the best way to do it is to do the full week. It's to do the full program, do every movement you do, just remove the things that are very intensive on your nervous system and drop the volume a little bit. And what that would look like is if I go in and I have a leg day and I start with box jumps, I'm going to remove the box jumps and get right to the squat because the box jumps are more neurologically driven, right? And then I'm going to lower my RPE and I'm probably going to drop the intensity to do that for the squat. So what that would look like is instead of me doing five sets of five at an RPE of nine, like heavy low rep squats, I might go three sets of eight at an RPE of eight. Higher reps, slower tension, focus on form. I'm still doing the movement pattern itself. I'm placing my muscles under tension. I'm practicing the, the, the exercise, but I'm not going balls to the wall. I'm not going low rep. I'm not going super heavy. I'm not bringing it that close to failure. And I'm just trying to leave a little bit in the tank. So neurologically speaking, I can recover. Yeah. That's a structured way to do it. You just lower the RPE. You lower the, the intensity and or volume by like 10 to 25%. Perfect load week. For those of you who kind of like to just wing it, 
you can also kind of fuck around on those weeks. So that's where you go in and you do the same thing. You remove the explosive work. You, you remove some of the heavy loading stuff and you go lighter load, higher reps, stuff like that. But then you also, you go, you know what? I'm going to throw some extra abs in. I'm going to throw some arms in here. I'm going to remove this. I'm just going to kind of have fun in the gym. And it's more of a psychological deload of just getting out of the program, which I tend to do best with because I don't push my training to a point where I'm burnt out anymore just because my lifestyle has a lot of stress in it. So there's no point in me bringing myself to the edge you know, every once in a while I do and I regret it. So when I deload, it's more of a psychological thing of like, I've been like on the fucking money with this program, ever tracking every progressive over everything. I'm just going to go in the gym. I'm going to do curls every day. I'm going to do some, you know, I'm just going to kind of like wing it or I plan it around a vacation. I'm not going to train at all. You know what I mean? Um, and that's an easy, more intuitive way to do it. That I think comes with a little more experience, but either way is good. I mean, at the end of the day, all you're trying to do is, is kind of create a super compensation effect, right? pull things back, deload, lower intensity, lower volume, give yourself a break, kind of uh, resensitize your muscles a little bit, and then jump back into really hard training the week after because you're going to train harder and perform better and your muscles are going to be more sensitive to what you do because of that deload. And there's a little bit of researcher on this uh, super compensation effect of kind of like pulling back and then going all in afterwards and then seeing that super compensation muscle growth effect. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's my overall recommendations on deload. Totally. I'm just trying to see if I have. Uh, yeah, that's it for today. So, cool. All right, guys. As always, uh, leave us a five-star rating review. Leave us a question. So if you're following me on Instagram, you can always ask there. Join the Facebook group. That's in the description as well. And there's also a form that says, Ask Boom Boom. I am Boom Boom if you're new to this podcast. Uh, we should probably change that, like ask Cody your question. Yeah. You know, so like the, the, the veterans know I'm Boom Boom, Cody Boom Boom McBroom, but I haven't been called that for a while. Uh, so maybe we'll change that. But point is, click that. You can fill it out. You can ask us any question for the podcast that you want, and then we can bring it up and answer it um, for you on the next episode, on the next Q&A. So leave us a five-star rating review. Share this on Instagram. Tag me. We appreciate you guys listening, and we will catch you next time.